That was EXID with Hot Pink, starting a musical revolution with its built-in hype man. You obviously caught that during the song. Now that takes us to the last track of the day. It's by Taiwanese rock band Mayday, with a song called Yongan, or Bravery. Now, they are a Taiwanese indie rock band, and while... Artists from Taiwan usually tend to sing in Mandarin. This is not in Mandarin or Cantonese. It's in Taiwanese Hokkien. And it's another uplifting song. It's all about having the heart and the courage to tackle the world, not worrying about what could potentially happen. So that will play us out. If you have any requests for me at all, don't hesitate to send it my way. AsianWave101 at gmail.com. If you have any thoughts on this week's news, don't hesitate to send it my way. AsianWave101 at gmail.com. Especially if you have any thoughts on China's uh, moves to take advantage of the internet era to introduce new stars. So this has been Asian Wave 101. I'm Steve Zhang for CITR 101.9 FM in Vancouver, live from the UBC campus on unceded Musqueam territory. Thank you for tuning in, and I will talk to you next time.
Welcome back, um, Welcome everyone back. who is listening, and to new listeners who are tuning in just especially for the Arts Report. Um, today, I will be your host. My name is Christine Kim, and we also have my co-host... Ashley Park. Hello, everybody. Uh, we are broadcasting to you live from the University of British Columbia here on unceded Musqueam territory. And Ashley and I are both very, very happy to host today's show. We've mm-hmm. got an exciting um, announcement, actually, yeah. about some special coverage we're going to start to do today. Yep. Um, Ashley, do you want to give us a little bit, our listeners, a little bit of information about what that's going to sure, be? Sure, guys. Well, if you guys don't know, but you should have, because I kind of hinted at it last week. That means you should go listen to last week if you didn't hear it. But the uh, 2016 uh, international kind of um, festival is coming. It is Push Festival, as I was mentioning before. We have a lot of really cool stuff. And we're doing a very special coverage that is with um, Women's Collective and also Indigenous. We are going to be interviewing a lot of the artists here on our Arts Report and also doing a show review. So you get kind of back-to-back coverage. The artist interview will um, premiere, we're, we're expecting, one week before their show. And then the review will be right after their show on the following Arts Report. Just so you guys get a full scope of the artist's kind of like their message throughout their performance. And if you have the chance to go do so. And then we will also follow up with our interpretation of how they kind of showed their expression on the stage. We're going to kind of kick it. And uh, start with a uh, with one of the um, first premier performances of Push Festival. I have an interview with uh, dancer Akash Odedra of Akash Odedra Dance Company, and he is a British contemporary dancer who actually uses classical Indian dance techniques of kata and ba- ba- darn it batra natyam. I probably really just. Ugh clobbered that but he says it's much more better he is very eloquent and he will let us know more about it and that's coming up uh later on yeah guys please do stay tuned for that um and thank you so much ashley for uh that little preview i guess i hope many listeners will uh stay tuned now just to start off the show with our very first guest um we have a violinist who is going to be in an upcoming concert called Songs of the Wasteland. His name is Mark Ferris. Mark, are you on the line? Yes, I am. Hello. Welcome to our show. Um, Thank you very much for taking the time out of your day to talk with us. Can you tell us about Songs of the Wasteland that is presented by the Vancouver Academy of Music, a little bit about what, what it's about? Sure. Thanks so much for having me on. Really appreciate it. Um, well, I, just uh, as a bit of background, um, the, it's, it's part of Holocaust remembrance, basically, for those who aren't familiar with that um, period of recent history. It was during World War II, uh, the notorious time when um, Jewish people in particular were singled out 
in in uh, various areas of Europe uh, under the Nazi regime and were uh, well basically uh, it was a pretty yeah, yeah it was it was a modern genocide and just and and just a terrible uh, unspeakable kind of um, mm-hmm. racist uh, sort of tragedy mm-hmm. so that's that's the story that um, is behind the songs of the wasteland uh, by Rinia Perel Perel sorry Rinia Perel um, who is a Holocaust survivor she she lives in Vancouver still wow it sounds like it's going to be a very um emotional event yeah Mm -hmm. um for yourself experiencing being a violinist for such a um uh such an important i guess um musical production um what was your experience like was it was it hard at times to um practice was it um really eye-opening for you in a way that you didn't expect yeah well completely i mean being involved in projects like this, it is a very uh, moving experience. I, I'm not Jewish uh, myself. I come from a different background. But we, most of us in the music, in the classical music uh, world, uh, are very familiar with a lot of uh, Jewish culture just because it's had a, quite a bit of influence from mm-hmm. Eastern Europe and so on and so forth. There, you know, I, I could name a number of composers from that um, ethnic and cultural background. So they've had a big influence on music culture in general. And then, um, so, you know, as a classical musician, you, you, that's part of your training is to be, to be versed in those kinds of things. Um, but then to have the experience of working with a composer is another layer of reality that comes into it and, and intimacy with mm-hmm. the material. So it's, you know, it's one thing to play something that was written 200 years ago, which is totally cool. Mm -hmm. It's another to work with a living composer. It's yet another to have this composer writing autobiographical things about an experience like that, because you're not going to meet many people in your life who, A, went through that experience and survived it, and B, are willing to open themselves up and actually pour out their guts and tell you the story and, and, you know, share it with you because that's a hard thing to do. So, no, it's a very important um, aspect of what artists can do, and that's, and that's what we're doing with this uh, performance coming up in January, uh, which is we're going we're gonna to be t- doing two shows. I don't know if you have the dates. Um, if, if you could remind our listeners, that the, would be great. Yeah, um, I think we're doing one in the morning on the January 26th, which is Tuesday, January 26th, and then another one in the evening at 7.30 p.m. Um, I think it's going to be a school show in the morning, so I think the main evening performance at 7.30 at the Vancouver Academy is the one that many people might be interested to attend. Right, and is this performance going to be strictly... uh classical music are there videos photos are there different kinds of music and musicians that um, feature in this performance yeah there's a well it's it's a chamber performance and it does involve multimedia so there's lighting i i actually don't know you'd have to ask somebody who knows more about the way this show is going to be produced um but there is some multimedia aspects to it some visual Mm -hmm. aspects to it lighting so it's a dramatic performance uh, and basically, there are 
uh, I, I don't want to get into too much detail right now, but there's um, it's a suite of pieces. So think of it like um, one of your bigger uh, well-known works, like a, like a mass, which has a bunch of different movements. Um, it, it's a suite, so, it, so it's basically telling stories. Um, so, and the ensemble itself is a really interesting uh, group of people and instruments. We have two voices. We have a, a female uh, soprano. We have a baritone male voice. And um, by the way, some of the songs are in uh, Yiddish. Some of them are in, in English. So there's uh, a variety of things. A lot, of, a lot of it's in English. And then we have a harp. We have a cello, a violin, mm-hmm. a clarinet. We have uh, a koto, which is the Japanese plucked instrument, which plays on a piece uh, called sakura, which is um, has to do with uh, the Japanese culture that was involved. So um, it's a beautiful little ensemble, very intimate. And so it's kind of like uh, a storytelling session where the music just kind of gently tells these, uh, these various stories and kind of unfolds the ideas to you. And it's actually very almost meditative. Um, you could call it quasi-classical. It's, uh, it's definitely not you know, rock and roll, and it's definitely not jazz, and it's, you know, it doesn't have anything like that. It's pretty simple. Mm. And I mean, just judging from the instruments that you just listed, it sounds like it's going to be just such a beautiful piece. Um, And I'm just curious um, as to how you um, got it actually initially involved with this project, Songs of the Wasteland. Was this something that you were there for for the early stages of um, creation, or was this something that you auditioned for? Oh, that. Well, um, for as far as I can remember, I'm, I was kind of like the second group of people who worked on this project. The, the initial people who worked on the project stopped working on it. And then I, I actually don't know exactly how my name got suggested. Um, but the original, the guy who, who did the arrangements um, worked with Rinia uh, because she's not a trained musician. And I don't think she can notate music. So believe it or not, he let this gentleman, Larry Nickel, who's a, who's a wonderful local uh, musician. Some of your listeners may know of him. Um, He's a wonderful arranger anyway. uh, So he sat down and just listened to Renya sing the songs Mm -hmm. uh, and hum the tunes. And then he created parts and made arrangements for the ensemble out of it. So he did that initial work. And then I came in after that was all done, I see. and we performed it in yeah, we did it in 2010. Hmm. So this will be uh, five years, and uh, I'm really glad to be doing it again um, hmm. because I I think people who go to it, I, I mean, I wouldn't be scared to go to it. I think it's it's more of a dramatic presentation. It's not um, the music itself is quite beautiful and melodious and almost almost haunting, but it's also a bit meditative. It's very reflective. So it, this is not like people, there's nobody that's going to be like screaming in your ear or mm. like ba- bashing on, a, on a, a trash can or something like that. You know, um, it's, it's, this is really quality music we're talking about and wonderful players as well. 
Yes, and I, I thank you again, uh, Mark, for telling us um, exactly how you got involved and just generally about the uh, performance that's going to be happening. Um, so that concludes kind of the questions that we had for you. But if you could rev like, review the uh, details on how to get tickets for the event, um, for any of our listeners that are interested in learning about more, that would be great. Well, I guess I should have done my background and figured you would have asked me that question because I actually think you have to contact the Vancouver Academy uh, of Music for tickets. And I apologize for not having more information for you. Not a problem. Um, um, but yes, the Vancouver Academy of Music, if you look it up, um, just, just Google it. And then um, it's going to be let me just look at here. There's a couple of places you can get it. Um, yeah, if you look it up, um, Songs of the Wasteland mm -hmm. at Vancouver Academy of Music, you can buy tickets online. There's eventbrite.ca. Do you know that site? Yes. E yes. Yeah. Uh, E-V-E-N-T-B-R-I-T-E.ca. Um, they have tickets for sale, and I'm sure you can get them at the door as well. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. I, oh, by yes. the way, tickets are $10 for general admission, which is really uh, extremely affordable, and $5 for students and seniors. Wow, even more incentive for us students on the University of British Columbia campus to go. Well, thank you again. You're very, very welcome. All the best. <laughs> yes, thank you. All right, Ads Reporter listeners, we have more exciting guests coming right up, so please do stay tuned um, after a few short PSA breaks. Attention grad students, share your research, find out what's going on in other disciplines, approach your work from a new angle. Check out Fire Talks, the interdisciplinary discussion forum sponsored by the Research Commons at Kerner Library. Visit bit.ly slash firetalk for more information. Warm up your winter with multiple Juno Award winner Alex Cuba as he supports his new album, Healer. Co-presented by K-Meek and Blue Shore Centers, Alex Cuba will be at the K-Meek Center in West Van on February 6th, performing at 8. Visit alexcuba.com for tickets and for more information. When I look up, nothing brighter happening in the sky. Welcome back, arts reporters. And as promised, we have another fabulous guest on our show today, and that is Chef Gus. Welcome to our show, Gus. Thanks for having me. Um, my first question right off the bat is, tell me about what you are doing next week in Winnipeg. Uh, next week, I'm flying to Winnipeg for Raw Almond. So it's a uh, this is the fourth year now that the event's been going on. Um, and it all started four years ago with uh, chef operator of Deer and Almond Restaurant. And he got together with uh, a guy who ran uh, Raw Gallery, henceforth Raw Almond. And they wanted to do something different. Uh, so they started uh, the restaurant on the river. And this is a time of year where Winnipeg is the coldest. Like, you know, we're talking about minus 40 some nights with oh the wind God. chill. Yeah, it's, it's pretty full on. And so what they wanted to do was build a restaurant on the ice uh, where the two rivers meet. I mean, it's a, a central Winnipeg location, iconic location. And they wanted to do something where they involve a ton of different uh, chefs. So the first mm -hmm. year was all Winnipeg chefs where they kind of invite a bunch of different chefs from the community. And it's a big, 
you know, community building event where mm-hmm. people can come out and see what different cooks are doing. It's a big collaborative event. Um, so as the years have grown, they've kind of invited people from across Canada and mm-hmm. now the United States as well. Um, so last year was my first year I got invited to go and it was incredible. Uh, so I went and cooked for two nights. Uh, I cooked for, uh, 14 people three times. So three seatings and it was, it was intense. I did a very ambitious seven course menu. Yeah, that is ambitious. (laughs) Yeah. And so this year I've been invited back. Uh, so I'll be cooking on the 23rd and 24th. And again, I think I have seven or eight courses lined up to do. And, uh, can you, uh, give a little teaser or no? Yeah. How is your preparations for this year's, Mm -hmm. um, raw almond been different from the last year? So this year going into it, I know that, uh, definitely, um, Prior preparation is is pretty key. So I'm doing as much of my mise en place, as much of my prep here as I can and bring it with me. Um, and that allows me a lot more time there to enjoy myself while I'm doing it and, and be a little bit more involved. Uh, so we have a lot of fun stuff. Um, our first course is foie gras, uh, torchon, with uh, fresh brioche and quince, which is from the Okanagan and a little bit of a shiso vinegar, vinegar gel, which is, um, you know, just a little one-biter just to really get the, the you know, get you excited for the meal to come. Uh, then we're doing a perch staple. So we're doing uh, the seared albacore uh, tuna on German potato salad, which is kind of a nod to my grandfather. It was one of the things that he did very well. And so it's something that I've kind of brought to perch, and it's kind of one of our ma- mainstays on the menu. Mm-hmm. Uh, into there, we go into the scallop Waldorf, which is another perch a la carte item, which I love. And it's just, you know, a, a rehash on a classic, you know, lightening it up a little bit, making it a little bit more interesting. Uh, then we're doing a uh, link cod and sweetbread dish with sunchokes and black truffles because, you know. Mm. Who doesn't like truffles? Exactly. <laughs> Who doesn't like lingcod? Oh yeah. My God. <laughs> so it'll be another luxurious dish. Uh, the main course is going to be uh, duck two ways, so roasted duck breast and a goulash of the leg meat uh, with spetzel and Brussels sprouts, kind of another kind of more German. I tend uh, in the last, I don't know, year to definitely be leaning on my German roots mm-hmm. a lot more in my culinary style. So um, that's how the menu goes, and then I have a little palate cleanser of elderflower that I forged in Pacific Spirit Park with uh, spruce shoot oil and uh, poached pear. BC represent. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, very nice. And then um, the dessert is Lebkuchen, so another German uh, kind of Christmas dessert uh, with uh, preserved cherry sorbet. So overall, it's you know a pretty well balanced meal. It touches on a lot of stuff. There's a lot of you know nods to my German heritage. There's bring some West Coast to the prairies, and then also doing some prairie stuff there too. Mm. And what kind of, um, I'm curious, like, what kind of things did you learn from the chefs that you met at Raw Almond? Were there a couple dishes in mind that you were like, wow, like, these are really great? Was there any kind of um, new connections that you didn't really expect to find there that um, you can... Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's so cool to see other people cooking and other people's cooking style. And it's not necessarily that I'm going there and, like, seeing recipes like, oh, like, but I definitely did pick up probably a half dozen recipes that I use now. Um, huh. And then just the connections, you know, friendships that, that mm-hmm. have been built. Um, people that I met on the river and now, you know, they come to Vancouver. And uh, we ended up doing a pop-up last winter at uh, Blacktail in, in Gastown. Um, and one of the guys who was supposed to be there got snowed in in, uh, in Newfoundland. So I ended up picking up the main course through that connection. Um, you know, it's just... 
chefs generally there's like a sense of camaraderie but generally there's also a lot of ego going on and um i feel like in an event like that like a lot of that is kind of nobody nobody needs that there everybody's kind of there for the same reasons everybody's having a great time so (laughs) that that event that's what i love about it is that everybody's you know everybody's helping each other out when they're not busy doing their own stuff and Mm -hmm. uh yeah it's just that sense of collaboration and community that i really love about it everyone was just having a really good time absolutely on the river on the river i'm still amazed at that (laughs) And, uh, I mean, it's sponsored by Vov and Belvedere, so mm-hmm. that definitely adds to everyone having a great time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, popping bottles, and, yeah, it's, it's pretty great. Now, what you're going to do um, with Moralman is all the way over in Winnipeg, but as you kind of mentioned, you are also at The Perch. Yeah, so um, Perch, right now we have a couple of fun, exciting things going on. We're taking a part of uh, Dine Out Vancouver. Um, which runs from the 15th to the 31st. So we have a pretty cool menu for that. Uh, a few of our, again, a la carte mainstays and a couple new items uh, that, you know, we have our uh, corn soup, which is, you know, crowd pleaser for sure. And then our albacore tuna, which I'm bringing to the river just because it's such a great dish. Those are the options for the first course. And then main, we have the steelhead trout, which is, you know, one of the most perfect dishes I can think of. Uh, then a goulash of short rib with schwetzel and... Uh, mm. Again, very much those German flavors. And then uh, for a vegetarian option, we have the grain salad with roasted mushrooms, which you can also add a, a poached egg to, which, um, you know, really, uh, as far as a vegetarian option goes, it's, it's pretty fantastic. And then uh, the creme brulee for dessert. If only you brought these dishes for us to taste. Well, you guys will have to come up. <laughs> then we have to either go to Winnipeg or go to Perch. Yeah, I think so. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Tell me a little bit about um, your career thus far as a chef. I mean, it seems like you have these amazing opportunities like um, the pop-up restaurant that you um, were briefly talking about, the upcoming Raw Almond, and then Perch. Um, for yourself, has has this, ex- this career path of this, as a chef been really um, – been turning out the way that you expected it to? Well, I mean, it's it's one of those things. I've always had an appreciation for food. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, growing up, we had a massive garden. Uh, we always ate out of the garden all summer long and then preserved a lot of our stuff. And we had a root cellar, uh, like a cool room in the basement where we kept all of our, like, celery act, beets, carrots, leeks, all that sort of stuff. And also, my grandparents uh, have a farm just outside the city, like 45 minutes mm-hmm. from our place. And they have a massive, like, football size, uh, football field size garden out there that we mm-hmm. helped a lot uh, with. So, I mean, it was always kind of not necessarily taken for granted, but... There's a it respect w- to it. To oh, food. for sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm. But there's always just, like, you know, I just assumed that that's how people ate. Like, <laughs> it's just, like, it came naturally that, you know, you eat good food. And that's <laughs> just, that's, that was simple as that. Uh, when I was 13, I got my first job in a restaurant washing dishes. And... Um, as much as I had that, you know, appreciation for good food, I fell in love with the restaurant lifestyle um, at a pretty early age. I mean, you know, being a dishwasher and watching all the badass cooks, and you're like, wow, those guys are so cool. And, you know, it was just a nonstop party. Everyone's having a great time and a huge, again, community sense, big restaurant family. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I basically grew up working in restaurants. And uh, eventually at one point I kind of was like, all right, like, the restaurant I worked at was pretty grinder. Like, we'd do 700 people on a Friday night type thing. Um, 
So eventually I kind of looked at it like, you know, if I'm going to do this as a career, I should probably go to school, make it legit. <laughs> so I went to Red River College in Winnipeg, which has a great program. And that's really the chef instructors there that make it. Uh, just really knowledgeable guys, guys that really care about, you know, passing on the knowledge to the next generation. And what was amazing about that is they uh, they push you to do, or you, part of the program is doing a practicum. So um, I did two different practicums over my two-year program. One of them was helping open a restaurant, uh, Mammy's. Um, which was a Caribbean fusion disaster. I mean, it opened and closed within a year, but it was really cool to get to see a restaurant open from scratch mm-hmm. and then close and <laughs> all those factors as the, you know, why that happened. Yeah. And then what really uh, was a turning point in my life and career was uh, my second practicum was in Germany. Um, and I have a lot of family there. Um, and I've been there numerous times. So going to Germany, I mean, it seemed like a natural thing and, uh, in the small town where my family lives, there's a number of Michelin star restaurants and like the, the dining scene is definitely elevated there. I mean, people again, appreciate food a lot more than I think people do here. So I spent a better part of a year working at a, a luxury hotel. And then from there had the chance to do a few stages. Uh, so, you know, spending time in different kitchens and then eating uh, across Europe. Mm-hmm. So that was a huge eye-opening experience for me in I that, um, yeah, I mean, it's just a different way that people deal with food. Uh, I mean, it's as simple as asparagus. Like, there you eat beautiful white asparagus and green asparagus as well, but more focus on the white asparagus. But you eat it kind of um, May, June, and then the rest of the year you don't bother because that's the time when the asparagus is good, mm-hmm. and then you eat it then, and then you wait until the next year. And uh, strawberries, I mean, June, July, that's when you eat strawberries. The rest of the year you don't bother. You don't bother buying the ones from Mexico that are white in the middle. Um, and it's such a different way to... Uh, cook and to utilize the ingredients when you just kind of you use them when they're at their peak and then the rest of the year you don't bother so that was something that was definitely ingrained on me from being there um, and while I was there I got to meet uh, Scott Yeager who was uh, the chef of the pear tree so he was there cooking at the uh, Culinary Olympics in Erfurt and so I met him there and uh, from there was the connection that led me to Vancouver because once mm-hmm. I got back to Winnipeg it got real small all of a sudden uh. No kidding, going from, you know, the food scene in Europe to Winnipeg. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, the food scene in Winnipeg is definitely over the last five years just exploded. I mean, they're getting huge um, uh, accreditations, you know, like restaurants are getting nominated for the top ten on the en route list. And, you know, there's just tons of great chefs doing a lot of great food there, which is amazing. I mean, it gives me, I have a lot of family and friends there, and I don't know necessarily, like, I love it in Vancouver, but there's definitely thought of one day returning home, and now there's, it seems like, you know, there's a lot more going on there, so it gives me hope to, you know, maybe one day open a restaurant there as well. Mm, Wow. Well, thank you again, um, Gus, for being on our show today, and I guess as a final um, closer to this interview, could you remind our listeners about the uh, Dine Out, um, Dine In? Dine Out. Dine Dine Out um, details. And if you do have kind of like a food blog that you keep up or different social media accounts. I I mean, I'm on Instagram, um, and I don't even know what my Instagram name is, but I'm sure you can find (laughs) links to it on the Perch Instagram. Um, So Dine Out right now is it runs from the 15th to the 31st, and it's $30 for a three-course menu. And, um, yeah, it's just a good way to experience the whole whole pull of uh, what we're doing at Perch. Also... um, We've been doing a lot of tweaking and trying to make uh, our menu a little bit more, um, 
you know, we're doing a lot of new lunch items that are kind of a lower end pricing so that um, it's a little bit more affordable. Um, and we're just trying to do a lot of things to to uh, have a lot more students come in and check us out. I know mm-hmm. there's been a lot of stigma attached to Perch that it's this fine dining, scary, you know, expensive place, mm-hmm. which it's really not. I mean, when you look at our prices compared to any, um, you know, Cactus Club, Joey's, Earl's, our prices are a lot lower and the quality and standard of food and quality of ingredients, I think, is a lot higher. So You, al- um, you also have, like, a real passion for it. It's not just, like, the crowd pleaser or whatever. It's kind of like, this is what I really want to create for you to taste. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And we're just trying, you know, like, I'd love to get more students up there um, because, I mean, this is the student union building, mm-hmm. right? Like, this yeah. is mm-hmm. this is for the students, and, and I'd love to show them that, no, it's not, not some, you know, scary white tablecloth and yeah you, know, you gotta suit up or whatever yeah no no it's 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 somewhere that people could be coming you know once or twice a week mm. and when i look at what our prices especially with our new lunch menu that we've just launched uh are compared to some of the other outlets that we have here i mean you can eat a proper plate of food for mm-hmm. you know 10 11 dollars and you know if you're willing to spend that on something at the deli or at the pit or at the burger bar like why not give Perch a chance as well? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Kind of expand your kind of culinary mind and palate. Yeah, I think so. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, thank you again. And I I hope for all of our student listeners especially that you guys do check out the Perch because it sounds like an absolutely um, good dining experience to get good food. I kind of want to just be like, hey, Christine, you want to just take a, a little lunch break commercial time? <laughs> yeah, little, I mean, like, with all this food um, <laughs> Early conversation we've Absolutely, been and we actually have just launched a lounge menu uh, that's a little mm-hmm. bit more um, complete than it was when we first opened. So a lot more under $10, you know, in the kind of like 3 to $8 range really? where you can come up and get snacks and, you know, we have happy hour up there. So there's mm-hmm. definitely... A good time. Definitely a good time. Mm-hmm. Thank you again, Gus, for being on our show. Um, And best of luck with Raw Almond. All right, thanks so much for having me. Arts Reporter listeners, um, we are just going to, you know what, go right into uh, our next guest. Um, We have a very packed show for you guys, and uh, we hope that each week uh, we can be bringing forward to you um, listeners, all of the cool arts and culture events that are happening, not only in Vancouver, but as you can tell, all across Canada. So our next guest is a um, is one of the is Show One Productions founder Svetlana Dvorskaya. I really hope that I said yeah, that right. You got it right. <laughs> you got it right. Thank you so it's much, there, Svetlana, for being on our show. <laughs> well, thanks for having me. My and pleasure. Part of the reason why you are on our, well, actually, one of the main reasons why you are on our show today is mm-hmm. here to talk about the Vancouver premiere of the world-renowned sensation Yamato, the drummers of Japan, in a one-night-only mm-hmm. engagement of heart-pumping music and electrifying athleticism. Yeah. I'm, <laughs> sh- I'm really curious as to know what is Yamato, what about it makes it so heart-pumping and electrifying? Mm-hmm. Well, um, I mean, it's many, many, many years ago mm-hmm. when I first saw that show myself, and uh, I was in complete awe, and I was trying to explain to my friends that actually what, what just happened to me, I couldn't, um, I couldn't really uh, put it in words because uh, it's an experience that one has to live through. 
Mm-hmm. Um, it's when you start to explain what is it all about, it might, you know, come in bits and pieces that are, you know, some people may think that you have to be very familiar with Japanese culture or Asian culture, but it's it's totally not. It's the experience that even if you never even heard of, uh, you know, the, that culture and, and you have no idea what it might be, it's something that just takes you in and uh, you you get completely carried away of what's happening on stage. But there is two things that are going on. There's, there's a show on stage and there's something happening with your heartbeat when you're in the audience. Basically, you see about two dozens of super athletic, energetic, um, extremely talented and extremely disciplined and funny um, men and women. And uh, all they do the whole night long, they, they drum. However, the sound, it's, the sound could be so different, like you come to see the orchestra and they play 1,000 different notes, 1,000 different melodies. One could not, I couldn't really even imagine that the different drums can create so much, so much different sounds and different experience. And they start the show. I'm just going to give this one away and then I, I should not say it anymore. <laughs> the more you tell um, us, the more it's better for us. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> uh, they start with playing in the 500, five, yeah, 500 years old, big, huge drum that made out of a 400 years old tree that is 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 the ancient it's a very very like can get more ancient instrument than that and uh, just to see that uh piece of art that piece uh, like a tremendous piece is is uh, is totally extraordinary um, and then there's all kinds of different instruments involved. But it's not just scene after scene after scene. Uh, they interact with the audience uh, on the regular, like, you know, almost throughout the whole show. Mm-hmm. And uh, you get involved, like, really from the first beat. Um, it's, it's a very spiritual connection that is created between the audience and the performance mm. because all of them you know like they're, they're not just performance right there is a big history behind uh taiko drumming of course uh but like i said if anyone is interested they can they can google um what is it all about and uh but uh, all of these people they live in in the village um in a village called asuka and uh, it's a place that's very well known as a sort of birthplace of the Japanese culture. And uh, they perform six to ten months a year, but the rest of the time they all live there communally. They create everything, everything that they carry with them. They create costumes. They create um, some, you know, instruments, sort of like the modern instruments they bring with them. They create... Um, lighting design, all the uh, choreography, uh, the ideas for the makeup. Basically, everything is done in, in, that, in, in that place. And they, 
they do live by those old Japanese style, you know, those communal villages. If anyone saw the movie The Last Samurai mm. with um uh who was starring there? Tom Tom Cruise. Oh my god. Yes, Tom Cruise. Thank you very yeah. much. Yes. So it's it's those type of villages. They still exist. So one of them belongs to Yamato. So they bring not just not just the talent. There's a lot of spirituality and and there is a lot of history behind every single scene mm-hmm. that is on stage. It sounds like it's going to be a very um, unique experience for us people who are local Vancouverites to uh, get to experience. Was it difficult contacting the uh, Japanese musical ensemble and getting them to come play here in Vancouver? Has this kind of thing been done before? Oh, well, it's because this, like I said, this group, this particular group is known for being um, very well known on the international scene. Right. What it is difficult, they perform, I believe, in more than 50 countries thus far. Um what is the and they've been around for twenty years. They they were founded in nineteen ninety three. So it's what twenty makes it twenty three years, I believe. Right? Mm-hmm. And my math I hope my math is not wrong at this hour, but <laughs> roughly <laughs> but, twenty uh, years. Roughly twenty yeah. years. Um so what is difficult is um is to get the time on their schedule to come uh, to uh, to places like Vancouver, for instance, right, cause because so the majority of the tours are, um, you know, in Europe, in Japan, of course, in in all of the Asian countries. Uh, but there is a tour, I believe, every two years they're doing a big tour of the United States. Hmm. Um, I saw them in Toronto many years ago, and they haven't been, you know, they haven't been here since. But uh, this time around, we found the possibility to bring them to Vancouver. We found that one wonderful day, Saturday, February 6th, um, and uh, they're coming for the first time. Well, it's great to hear about the event, Svetlana, and thank you again for telling us about it. Um, could you tell uh, our listeners how to get tickets to this event if they want to um, oh. attend? Very, very, very simple. The, you guys have this wonderful company called Tickets Tonight. Mm. So uh, all of the, um, I can't tell you the telephone number right now because um, I'm not in front of my computer. However, Tickets Tonight, uh, if you Google, you'll find all the information. And um, if you like to call them, I'm sure their phone number will be on the website. There is also... All the information on ticketing is on our website, which is www.showoneproductions.ca, S-H-O-W-O-N-E, productions.ca. Fantastic. Uh, Any last words about Yamato before we end our uh, interview? Well, I would love to see everyone there. And what we can absolutely promise that the spirit, no matter what level you're going to come there, it will be many, many, many times elevated after you leave that room. And that will stay with you for a long time. That is a promise. Wow. Thank you very much again. And uh, 
I hope that February 6th draws in many, many Yeah, it's crowds. like a one-night, like, you know, big show. People better go. Yep. People better yep, go. Absolutely. They got to go. <laughs> they got to go. <laughs> Thank you very much. Hi, thank you. For, for listening and uh, all the best. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you. Yeah, all the best to Svetlana and uh, Yamato. Yes, um, we are going to take a short break, Arts Reporter listeners, but please, <laughs> that sounded robotic, please do stay tuned because we've got the interview uh, that Ashley has prepared and that we... Um, we also have a really, gave. really stellar review of Heather's The Musical with me and uh, Jake. Jake yes, mm-hmm. um, as well as one more interview. And so... To uh, just give you guys a heads up, we are probably going to go beyond our hour, usual hour-long episode. But I if know, you you're can, so happy about it, too. If you can, please do stay tuned. So, again, um, stay tuned after a few short commercial breaks. Bebby Crispin presents... Difficult music, harsh electronics, spoken word, cut-up slash collage, and a general crisp and weirdness. Sunday, 7 to 9 a.m. at CITR 101.9 FM. there has been one voice in the local Vancouver art scene that has stood above the rest and that's Discorder, that conspiracy, punk rock, foxcore, sassy, still publishing magazine from CITR. We're one of the established and trusted voices of Vancouver's music and arts culture in the Lower Mainland with 8,000 copies distributed monthly to over 135 distribution locations from the Lido to Zulu Records. Discorder is one of a few magazines published by a community radio station, and we only serve up the freshest local and Canadian goods. We have interviews with artists, album reviews, live show reviews, and articles about everything important to our crazy, unique, varied, and amazing culture in Vancouver and across the country. Pick up your free copy of Discorder today, or sign up to have it delivered to your door wherever you are. Check out our website for distribution locations and all the information about advertising and getting involved. It could be global, trance, spoken word, rock, the usual and the weird, or it could be something different. Oral Tentacles, Thursdays 12 to 6 a.m. at CITR 101.9 FM. show dedicated to playing psychedelic music from parts of the spectrum rock, pop, electronic, as well as garage and noise rock. Sundays, 5 to 6 p.m. CITR 101.9 FM. With the vast amount of changes happening in the world, it's almost impossible to get a clear picture of what's really going on. We are trapped within the logic of capitalism, leaving us unable to imagine what comes next. The Extra Environmentalist brings the perspectives of people who can see the whole picture and are ready for whatever comes our way. Tune in to The Extra Environmentalist every Wednesday from 2 to 3 p.m. on CITR 101.9 FM. This is the viewpoint that makes all places the same to you. Fridays at noon 
on CITR. Wow, wow, day. Hello. Welcome, arts reporters. Um, I am here with our co-host, Ashley, as well as Jake, our uh, recently joined uh, co-host. <laughs> and we Hi. And we have uh, the uh, Museum of Vancouver Director of Curatorial and Engagement Lead Curator, Gregory Dracer. Welcome. Welcome. Thanks. Thank you. Welcome to our show, and thank you very much for taking the time out of your day to come talk to us about uh, what the Museum of Vancouver is up to. Um, I saw that it is in partnership with the Vancouver Urbanarium Society to Correct. present a very thought-provoking exhibition. Um, can you tell us a little bit about um, what that exhibition um, targets in terms of issues uh, for Vancouverites here in the city? Sure. Well, if you were going to ask a Vancouverite or a group of them, what's your biggest concern mm -hmm. or biggest anxiety right now about living in the city, many or most of them would say, you know, housing affordability. That's really what you're hearing about all the time. And so in response to that, as you said, the Museum of Vancouver is partnering with the Urbanarium to do, present an exhibition project that explores affordability, but not only affordability, three other topics that are very closely related, which are density, how, how close uh, everyone's living together in Vancouver, um, transportation, you know, how we're getting around, and public spaces, actually the, the city that, we're, that we move around in, like what's it like? And so this exhibition is getting people to think about it, to rediscover the city itself, to think about solutions. Right, right. It's an extremely hot topic and not something that um, I think many Vancouverites wouldn't say that they identify with. So um, just going into a little bit more of the specifics of what this exhibition is going to um, show, is it a lot of uh, visual art, multimedia pieces. What have you guys brought together? Yeah. What kind of pieces have you guys brought together for this exhibition? Um, well, there, there's a lot going on, but a couple of the, the main parts. There's one um, we're calling a presentation center, mm. but instead of you know, trying to sell people a condo, it's Vancouver. We're showing Vancouver and getting people a little more familiar with what's going on, the changes in the city, and that's going to include... Um, a 3D, a very detailed 3D printed model of the city, a massive panorama with commentary on it. Um, we've got a fly-through and a very um, kind of up-to-date fly-through of Vancouver and, and just different ways for people to learn about actually what's going on, data visualizations that take you from really the beginnings of the city, even before the beginnings, to where it is today. The changes are really incredible. And then we have a, a kind of a larger space where... They're going to be about two dozen what we're calling future scenarios. We've invited architects, designers, uh, experts to present their take or their solution or to, the, to some of the issues facing everyone here in Vancouver, what they think might happen in the future. And so that, that includes all kinds of multimedia, you can call them artworks, uh, models, videos of, of all different kinds. And then um, integrated with that, we actually have about eight stories basically a case studies, turning points in Vancouver's history, what things were done and how did people participate in changing the city. And so we're looking at that through um, eight different stories. So that's uh, some, not everything, but that's some of what's going on in this exhibition where we're really trying to get, engage people and not just the usual crowd, but really a 
broader audience, get more Vancouverites mm-hmm. into into really thinking, learning, and thinking, and talking, and debating. Right. And as the lead curator for the Museum of Vancouver, is this just one um, kind of like the first of many to come that will almost start to take art and put it more into relevant political discussions? Is this kind of a initiative to get art a little bit more um, in the relevant sphere of current events, um, current local events um, here in the city? Well, I think, you know, we've we've been doing it for a while now that we really focus on contemporary Vancouver Mm. and social issues, and in particular, with a focus on design, design and art and kind of combining those because, you know, the way the city is designed, the way we design our lives, um, what we think about the city, how we interact, how we connect with each other, that's, you know, that's what the city is really about and what our lives are about. So the answer is yes. Um, We're continuing to do this and we plan to do a lot more, you know, a lot more of it in the future, bringing people together to, to actually to meet each other and to talk about what the issues are. Right, right. Um, for our listeners, can you remind um, um, kind of the details of the run of this exhibition yes, as sure. well as um, what they need to do in order to kind of get admission? Sure. Well, the exhibition is, you know, as I said, it's co-produced by the Museum of Vancouver and the Urbanarium, and it's opening next week, January 21st, and runs through May 15th. And there's going to be all kinds of programming. Actually, some of it's still to be developed, hmm. but you can everyone can find out more at museumofvancouver.ca. We will be, you know, posting things as we're developing them. Um, there's going to be a series of debates that is being created by the Urbanarium. The first one is happening on the 20th, and that one is actually already sold out. But there will be at least five more uh, very hard-hitting debate debates looking at, you know, some of the key issues. And then we'll be doing all kinds of programming, ranging from architects and designers giving tours of the exhibition, people giving tours out in Vancouver, out in the streets. Um, we're going to have a series of happy hours here where people can get together. Uh, have, there'll be an informal kind of presentation, and people can hang out, have a mm-hmm. drink, talk to each other. Mm-hmm. So there's yeah, all kinds of things uh, planned uh, over the next uh, four months. Hmm. This is a really exciting partnership with the Vancouver Urbanarium Society, and as the arts report, I hope that uh, we can have you back on again um, to talk more about the other partnerships that you guys, that the Museum of Vancouver ends up doing um, to create more exhibitions so relevant like this. Mm-hmm. It's quite noteworthy because a lot of Vancouverites are maybe they might or people who don't even really when they come to Vancouver they don't really know about the cultural kind of like like history of Vancouver, people yeah. kinda like the like the little touristy places like, ah yeah, Stanley Park, yes, like the beach and what whatnot. But people don't know how this city was actually formed by the people living within it and how it's continued to be formed. So I yeah. think it's actually really great for people to be informed about yes. the formation of yes. Vancouver. Yeah. And it's a great point because another issue is like what is Vancouver? Everyone mm-hmm. has their own idea really of what it is and, and you know and often people think of the downtown, but the downtown is really maybe 10% or, or less of mm-hmm. really the land area. Most of Vancouver is, is lo, you know, low-rise or industrial, and that's where the future, you know, is. What's going to happen, on, you know, everywhere else beyond the downtown? Mm-hmm. So there are a lot of things to think about. Right, right. And I have no doubt that uh, the debates that will come out of this will 
um, start to tackle many of those issues or at least get conversation going about it. So um, our supporter listeners, please do um, take the time out of your day, either sometime between the end of January to May, which is a very lengthy time frame, for hey. people to get out and yeah. check it out. Yes, please do. Yes. Thank you, Gregory. Okay, thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Arts Reporter listeners, that was a whole back-to-back, um, no-stop interview kind of frenzy. And, and we, we covered so many different, like, topics. It was, like, the topic of, like, you know, the Holocaust and, you know, music inspired by that. And we have, like, you know, people who actually went through that, living here in Vancouver, sharing their, you know, stories to everyone here. Then we have, you know, we have cooking. We have how Vancouver Culinary Arts is now helping to shape the art scene in Winnipeg and maybe other areas. We have, you know, Vancouver's own dine out that people can partake in. Man, and then we also have, like, this too. Oh, speaking of Winnipeg. uh, Speaking of Winnipeg. Yeah, I I mentioned, I do want to correct this before I I forget. Last week I did say about the norm, my Winnipeg would be on on last Thursday. Turns out I was extremely wrong about that. Okay. My Winnipeg is on tonight as a double feature with Medium Cool with Robert Forster. And we got some great uh, movies at the norm. We have Mad Max, a uh, double feature on yeah, on uh, on th- on Thursday where you can actually see the 80s progress huh. through Mel Gibson's personal appearance and then it, it's it's, it's <laughs> interesting cuz George Miller, the guy who made Fury Road, actually okay, yeah. directed the original Mad Max and those mm-hmm. three. So he's he's kept rain on it. It's pretty interesting. And uh, af- on Friday, there's uh, there's Repo the Genetic, Genetic Opera. Oh my god, yep. really? Yeah, and uh, and <sighs> Phantom of the Paradise, which are two great, really dark comedy Wait, musicals. What time? Seven and nine o'clock. I can't. Uh, well, speaking of dark comedy other musicals, people can. keep that dark comedy musical thought in your mind, but after that, on, on Saturday, there are these Japanese films. There is Hiroshima Mon Amour, which is about a French actress who has an affair with uh, a, a Japanese architect, I believe. Mm-hmm. And uh, also float, uh, uh, Floating Weeds, which uh, I've heard sometimes is one of the most visually beautiful movies ever made. I've never seen either. I'm definitely interested in this. And the end on Sunday with a Sofia Coppola double feature of Ooh. Virgin Suicides and Lost in Translation. Mm-hmm. And it's just that's it's 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 quite a it's quite a packed week. Yeah. But I'm I'm personally looking very forward to Reaper the Genetic Opera. I am too, but I can't It's but you know what? We did see another great dark comedy musical. Oh, we did see a very, really good dark comedy musical. What was it? That would have been Heather's. Heather's. Ooh, Heather. I wanted to quote it, but I don't know if there's profanity cap on this website. On this, um uh, can't Nope. Okay, cool. Yep. Okay. Well, how do we? How do we even say it? Like, like, fuck me gently with a chainsaw. This oh, is, this oops. is one of the best things in the history. <laughs> oh no, Literally. we don't. I thought the ex oh, was like no, we do. We don't. we don't. We don't. Well, dang. Well, there you go. <laughs> it's and uh, it, that's a that's a great line to go with it though because the the music in this thing I best describe it as imagine if Slim Shady collaborated with Doctor Zeus. Oof, yeah, that's that's kind of kind of a thought I had for the for the lyrics of this, and it's it. it I mean that in the best way possible because the book of this is is, is awesome. These, the some, music of it was really yeah, great. Yeah, some great songs. But what struck us best was the casting. Mm-hmm. Like, whoa. Um, as we all know, prior to you know the premiere of Heather's the Musical, we actually mm-hmm. interviewed uh, the uh, main actress Veronica Sawyer. 
um, was played by Christine Quintana. Mm -hmm. And we got to see her live on stage. She was very, very, like, I think what we mentioned is that we loved her timing. Her, well, her comic timing is oh brilliant. Oh, my gosh, yes. And she's she's an incredibly she, she really she does the character immensely. It's just it's just amazing how well she carries it through. Mm -hmm. And her character is even like the reason why we found her really great is she was very strong, but she was also juxtaposed by other strong personalities mm -hmm. right on stage with her. It didn't feel unbalanced at any point. No, 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 not at all. Everyone else who um, was on stage really brought their character forward. Right, and there, that's probably especially true of. Uh, Heather Chandler, who was oh my god! Like yeah. every time I saw Heather on Cynthia Yusuf. every time I saw Heather on stage, I was like, oh, I hate Heather, but I love Heather. Like even more than the movie, the um, Cynthia Yusuf, the, the 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 woman who plays uh, Heather Chandler, her she's very strikingly evil, like the, in in the character, but also so incredibly over the top. It's just amazing. Like it just drives yeah, it home. You so just like. She's just such a glamorous villainess. Yeah. That's how I could say it. Like, I don't know why. I'm just like, that's terrible, Heather. But Heather, yes, go for it. It's, it's just, you can only, and then there's, um, there's the man, there's uh, JD, who mm -hmm. is played by. Uh, K, uh, Kamiar Panzade. And he's, and he can sing incredibly well. Like, that's, oh that's my the God, thing. yeah. His singing is beautiful. Mm -hmm. And the thing is that the interesting thing this takes, the direction this takes JD is that in the movie, He's Christian Slater plays <laughs> yeah, him, yeah, yeah. so he's kind of lighthearted. He's still clinically insane, but he's never really like super well, edgy. I not, guess. No, no, no like, I don't no. know about edgy, but he's yeah, never yeah, truly bit. frightening. Like, cause he's, yeah, he's yeah. more of out. Yeah. He's more like out there. He never seems to take him it, the evil things he's doing seriously. Yeah, yeah. Whereas here, the JD is is actually. Well, I was like getting super tense just watching him. Like, he's believably scary, mm -hmm. and he, he shows more emotional foibles than the JD in uh, in the in the movie. Mm -hmm. And speaking of emotional foibles, um, we also have the other Heather's Heather Duke and Heather McNamara, and mm -hmm. played by Nido and Devin Buswood, and they really kind of like just flesh out the entirety that is the trifecta that is the Heather's, especially with um, Heather Duke when you know after. Spoiler alert, uh, Heather Chandler is a little like, oh, I gotta go. And then she takes on the role of, like, main Heather. The way that she commanded that stage, her presence, amazing. And, she, and she's a tiny, tiny woman, but she uh, every, <laughs> like, no, she, she is. And it's, it's all that, that power, though. Like, it's just, mm -hmm. well, it's, 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 it, it's it, again, there's nobody here is lacking for personality. And that's an amazing thing. Thing. Like it, especially, and another thing that I, I did want to say is that even the minor characters have incredible personality. There's a musical number in this one, and the title of this one is is kind of hard for me to say, but it's "I Love My Dead Gay Son." Yeah, and it's performed by Ken Overby and Nelson Wong, mm -hmm. and they they play a wide variety of roles. But in this case, they uh, they play the fathers of Kurt and Ram. Yep, played are, uh, played by actors. Um, yeah, I, uh, mm -hmm. the, the, uh, they're. Uh, <laughs> Just a moment here, though. Yeah. Play, play, played by actors, uh, Ram Sweeney's played by actor Colin Sheen, and Kurt Kelly's played by actor Hal Wesley Rogers. And they're these, uh, they're, they're these two football players who are the second victims of uh, of JD and technically Veronica. Technically, it's, Veronica. it's 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 a gray area, but they 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 have their funeral and it's they make it look like a gay suicide pact, and the their fathers. Like at first, the that are very uh, kind of angry and homophobic about it. It's disgusting. But then 
the one guy breaks down and complete he, like com- 360. complete yeah and then com- like, and he they it goes into this great musical number and it's just this powerful thing like it's it, it makes you want to punch the air and shout yeah <laughs> yeah it's it was just and, and these guys are they play a, a few roles they're play some basically ensemble parts but they own that song like that. That was honestly my, my favorite part of the production, and really? it's, it's really hard though to pick a favorite part of the production. Like that's yeah. it's after a lot of thought. Mm-hmm. One thing I really wanted to kind of commend um, this mm-hmm. production is actually the casting. Casting is oh, yeah. very you know varied, and the costumes look like they're actually kind of like from you know, high school in like that eighties. I want to just um, want to just kind of like say one thing about. Um, like, oh my gosh, the the costumes, I love the really kind of epic blazers that they have, like, in the original like, movie. And I was wondering like how they would... The shoulder pads The shoulder and pads everything. and everything. They don't have the shoulder pads, but still really iconic, really eye-catching. And it just really brings it even more over the top, so to speak. Hey, well, yeah, th- and that helps. And there's these bright colors. And there's the color coding, too, for the, the characters, which is really well done. Like, he- uh, Heather Chandler is red. Mm-hmm. Heather Duke is green. Heather McNamara is yellow, yellow yep. and then Veronica is blue. Mm-hmm. And it's all these these primary, well, it's not a primary color, but uh, it's <laughs> these powerful, these color contrasts. And it's all across their outfits. It's I really, really like well it. I, I, it kind of like, you know, if we're looking into like semiotics, like color symbology, red, color of passion, right, blue is more like yeah. a reclining kind of color, but still mm-hmm. quite strong too. Green, green with envy. Yellow, yeah. kind of like a warning cautionary. But yeah, yellow would be warning and caution. I wonder if green might be vomit too. Uh, oh. Oh. Uh. Uh, no. Okay. So <laughs> no, maybe not. One thing I really liked is that they looked like they're kids from high school, especially um, the actress who played Martha Dunstock. She was really amazing. Stephanie Davis, mm-hmm. man, powerhouse voice. Oh yeah. Yeah, really great. And um, I think we really enjoyed that production. Like, it, it, made, it made me enjoy it so much I did, like, an expletive. But <laughs> if, if there was one criticism. Yeah, like, there is a little it, minor technical thing, though. It's it's the sound. Sometimes the sound is always is a little bit. Uh, the, I don't know if it's, like, the mic problem, but it blows out mm-hmm. when there's a, a large musical number. So we can't, actually, we can't actually hear the main people singing. We can hear the ensemble fine. But the main part, I sometimes lose it. Although it, it did remind me of a story about Robert Plant. His mic blew out once apparently and the people in the back could still hear him during an early zeppelin concert huh. for some of these musical numbers like that was, it was for i love my for i love my dead gay son that's what it reminded me of because you could still hear them quite yeah. well mm-hmm. some other other times sometimes mm-hmm. not so that's like the one little little technical mm-hmm. issue though but all in all really great production if people are still interested in going to see it i strongly recommend it mm-hmm. it is at the york theater january 7th to the 17th so you still have time and man it was Really, really just, how can mm-hmm. I say? Great. It was awesome. We'll see you. Thank you, Jake Jay and Charles. Ashley, for that incredible review. I'm <laughs> kind of bummed that I didn't get to go see this um, dark musical comedy, Heather. Hey, it's not too late. It is still going on. Mm-hmm. That's true. Until the 17th. Fantastic. <laughs> well, Arts Reporter listeners, our final um, little portion of our show to kind of end us off and lead us out before we all say goodbye to you Ashley is the interview that we've all been waiting for since the beginning of the show yeah I saved the best for last but everyone else on before has been spectacular but this is the push festival I'm really 
pushing for it, huh? <laughs> Sorry, I'm doing so many puns today. Someone stop me. Anyways, yes, this is my interview with Mr. Akash Ojedra. He is coming to Vancouver. This is January 19th to the 20th at the uh, Playhouse. And if you want to know more about what he does with his dance, listen on. Fantastic. Well, thanks for listening to this week's show, um, listeners. And uh, please do stay tuned for that interview. Um, And we will see you guys next week or talk to you guys next week. Yeah. Cheers, fellas. I'm with Mr. Akash Odedra. Um, you have your own company. You're coming to Vancouver for the Push Festival January 19th to the 20th, and you are performing Inked and Murmur, a double bill dance piece. So first of all, thank you so much for speaking to us, the UBC Arts Report. How are you today? Yes, I'm very well, thanks. Thanks very much. I wanted to ask a little bit about your dance style. It says you are a contemporary British dancer trained in the Indian classical forms of Karthak and Bharata Natya. With, I only know a l- very little of Bharata because I've seen some local shows here, but for the listeners who may not be aware, what is Karthak and what is Bharata Natyam? Uh, Karthak is a North Indian form, um, so it's very similar. It has influences of the, uh, of the spiritual whirling dervishes. And a, a style of storytelling, kata means storyteller. Kata ka is a storyteller. So it incorporates um, a lot of storytelling. So does Bharatnatyam. However, Bharatnatyam belongs to the south mm-hmm. of India. And uh, as dance gets influenced by the architecture around it, the, the Mughal or the North Indian influence with the Islamic influence and the Hindu influence up north uh, gives this very circular feeling to buildings, hence the dance is also very circular and round. And Bharatanatyam is very linear and very structured, and it's almost like if you think of a building block, you know, it's a very, it, it has lines and it has a form which is quite fixed, and is done in the plie. So both are very different visually as well as, as, well as aesthetically. I'm guessing to to learn these forms, you must have gone through some rigorous training. Um, it's a way of life. So I officially started dancing at the age of eight. Oh, wow. And mm-hmm. uh, when you start dancing, you uh, especially if you take Kathak and Bhagavatam seriously, um, it becomes a way of life. So you pr- practically live with your guru, so to speak. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you sort of, you see more of your guru, uh, your, your teacher, than you would of your own parents. Um, so the training is quite um, holistic, so it's not just a physicality, it's a spiritual training as well. So the teacher or the guru takes the responsibility of you, not just as a dancer, but as a human being. So there's a whole uh, larger responsibility than just the physical and just the dance. So at the age of eight, I started training. So for the past 24 years or so, I've been dancing Gartik and Bhadmatim. Mm-hmm. And it also says that you are a contemporary dancer, but do you ever use those forms of dance with maybe Western styles in some sort of intercultural fashion? I'm the fourth generation outside of India, born mm-hmm. outside of India. My parents, grandparents, great-grandparents were born in Africa, and they, but we're still very much linked to India. We still speak three or four languages at home. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And, you know, being someone who is a British Asian, I have two parts to me that I believe. Uh, one part is the Western part, which is which is to do with my upbringing here in the West, in, in England. And the other part is my heritage, my blood, which is my Eastern part. So naturally, both the dance styles infiltrate into one another. Um, so contemporary, for me, is, is it's another language, it's another tool, it's another way of being able to extend your vocabulary so your expression can actually go beyond you know, a particular geographical boundary. As Indian, Indian dance, a lot of it was attached to the subcontinent in terms of its language, in terms of its aesthetic of dressing, whereas contemporary dance is something which belongs, or more so, it becomes, it, it becomes more associated with the West. So for me, um, I use both styles of dance to be able to speak a language which is broader so that people, um, whichever part of the globe you go, you can understand. That's very interesting. And I actually wanted to ask, is that how you came up with the concept of both Inked and Murmur? I'm just going to start with Inked right now. Um, you you kind of collaborated with choreographer Damien Gelet. And how was that collaboration? I know it is about the tattoos of your grandmother. Yes, that's right. Um, so I was raised by my grandmother, and we come from a Rajput, uh, a warrior-slash-royal caste. Mm. Women in our cast are tattooed, so permanent tattoos, all across their hands, their neck, their feet. So basically any visible skin, uh, apart from the face, uh, is tattooed. So it's almost like a symbol of a pride, and mm -hmm. it's also a symbol of protection, because no one would touch a mere woman because, because of the reputation of this race. Mm -hmm. um, so the last image I had when my grandmother passed away was me holding her hand, and my hand was clear, and oh. her hand was ink. Mm -hmm. So that image, so the, for me, inked became a piece of therapy. It became a piece about, so to speak, death, um, but then life beyond death as well. And this sense of uh, permanency and impermanency. So we use this idea of the figure of eight, no beginning, no end. Mm -hmm. So it sort of was symbolic of life that, you know, when you pass away in the physical, you transform into another place. Um, so it's a, a piece which is very personal to me. Mm -hmm. And in the piece, I, as I dance on this 9-meter by 5-meter paper, I actually draw a very symmetrical pattern as I dance. So it's very physical, very visceral, and uh, very spiritual at the same time for me. Oh, definitely. I can imagine so. Like As you mentioned, impermanence and permanence, your movements are very fluid. Yeah. They're not stopping, but the marks left over on the paper, very, very stunning, visual yeah. indeed. What was it like yes, working yes. with um, Damien? Damien is, I mean, he's a genius. I mean, you know, Damien, if I'm to look at a glass and Damien's to look at a glass, Damien can make something magical out of a glass. <laughs> uh -huh. You can take the most simplest object and really give it life. Um, and that's what the fascinating thing about Damien Gillette was. And also, I mean, he's very specific in terms of what he wants. So he doesn't stop until he finds exactly what he wants, which sometimes can be, like, you know, very exhausting mm -hmm. because he, he's so passionate. Even when we go out to eat, he's still talking about the piece, <laughs> you know. So working with Damien was a real eye-opener. It really makes you realize, you know, how hard people really uh, work and how passionate people really are about, about any subject they take on. So it's really interesting and amazing to work with him. 
And now that we've talked a little bit about ink, I would like to kind of go into murmur a little bit. This is more um, n not really tied to kind of the, your family, but more so your own personal journey. In murmur, it is about actually your diagnosis of dyslexia. Yeah, yeah. For me, dyslexia is, has so many negative connotations attached to it. Mm -hmm. If you're dyslexic, you're dumb. If you're dyslexic, you're slow. I mean, I grew up with all of these labels, and I refused to go into, you know, a special needs class where they were going to help me um, because I felt like they limit you by putting you into a box. Mm -hmm. And it's really sad for me because in, the 20, in a 21st century society, um, we judge... Um, people by the level of academic achievement mm -hmm. that they have. Um, and also a, a sense of testing people's intelligence is reading and writing. All the exams are about reading and writing. But we don't consider emotional intelligence, spiritual intelligence, spatial awareness, creativity. These are all forms of intellect. And a lot of people with dyslexia, the reason why it's difficult for a person with dyslexia to write is the mind thinks 200 to 4,000 times faster. In fact, the logic of thinking is so fast that you can't actually put any logic onto it. So my whole idea of this piece was really to challenge the negative um, uh, stigmas attached to dyslexia and to say it's okay to be dyslexic because you view the world and different doesn't necessarily mean bad. So the piece is called Murmur, which is inspired by a murmuration. A murmuration is a flock of birds which fly in the air. And as they fly, they, they create these shapes which warp and, and change constantly. So for me, this was like looking at a board, for example, in school, where the letters would shift, or looking at an object where the object visually shifts for someone who has dyslexia. Mm -hmm. So you would look at the world differently. And for me, personally speaking, Dyslexia actually became a blessing because I saw things differently and I ended up dancing and interpreting things differently. Mm -hmm. So it just became something which became a part of my identity, which was actually, in the end, a blessing. This is collaborated with the choreographer Lewis Major and Arts Electronica Future Lab. That's right. And yeah. how is this a little more different from Inked? Mum is very different because there's more of a narrative in there that people can follow. Mm -hmm. And also in terms of the collaboration with ours, I mean, visually, it's quite an epic piece. You know, we have vortex of fans where paper flies around me. Oh, wow. We have technology, which, so when I move on the floor, it follows me on the floor. I have this alter ego which appears, so it becomes almost very three-dimensional, almost mm -hmm. holographic in one way. So the piece is, for me, using technology to give an insight into the mind. Because in, in, in terms of the way we think, our mind has a very grand way of thinking. When we're young, our imaginations are so big. So I wanted to bring people into this world, into this circle of fans, into this cylinder, and allow people to come into the, the, the mind, the, the, the sense of thought, the sense of imagination. So it's very different. It's very visual. And, and emotional in a very human way for me. In a very, it's also know, very modern, pedestrian too. Way. Yeah, yeah, in a very pedestrian way. It's mm -hmm. quite, like, relatable in that way. And you're also doing a workshop as well. It says you're doing a workshop on dance and new technologies. Yes, that's right. Because it's always interesting. I mean, it's good when we go and see something and, you know, and, and we sort of appreciate it. But sometimes it's really important to be able to share the level of complexity that goes into any production. 
and for, so that people can actually get a chance to experience what it is like to work within that environment. You know, when I touch the curtain or if I touch something, how, how, it, how this sort of electric imagery appears. It's really interesting for them to also be able to engage with, with this technology because it's often only kept, you know, to myself when I'm performing. Mm -hmm. So for me to be able to share it is also just as important as well. One last question I had. This is might be a very uh, general question, but <clears throat> this is your first time at PUSH, right? Yes. What made you kind of decide, I want to showcase this at PUSH Festival? I think, well, to be honest with you, this piece has an element of something which is, I mean, it has a real contrast. One side is very abstract and the other side is, is more uh, lyrical mm -hmm. and more pedestrian. So for me, it has an element of extremely art, like very artistic and very contemporary. And the other side, it's a piece that relates to just people or just anyone, even for the pieces about dyslexia. Mm -hmm. So because it has this, this full rainbow of accessibility, I felt like it's really important because my job as a dancer is to be able to not just teach people and show them technicalities, but to touch them. And this piece really touches me, and I would hope that, you know, it would, even if it touches one person from the PUSH Festival, I feel like my job is sort of done. Mm -hmm. um, to quote you, it says that replacing words and letters, you've found your language through your body. How does dance kind of, um, for you, go beyond means of communication through um, speech? Mm -hmm. Uh, in my house, when, I, when I'm stuck uh, speaking in English, I can switch to Gujarati or Hindi or another language. But when I'm outside, sometimes I don't have that freedom. So sometimes when I want to say something, I call dance the language without words. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you just put your hand out in a certain place and it says everything. You know, it's a, it's, it, it doesn't have a sound, it doesn't say anything, but at the same time, it says everything. Mm -hmm. So for me, it's a language which, which is very primal. It connects to the primal side in us as human beings. And it manages to open up the level of expression. So for me, dance became the language that I spoke with, but the language without words. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for talking with us today, Akash. And just for all of our listeners, again, this is Inked and Murmur. It is January 19th to 20th. Uh, it is for the Push Festival at the Vancouver Playhouse, just because there are multiple areas. It's at the Vancouver Playhouse and is at 8 p.m. Please do take a look. The photos look stunning. And, again, the physicality and just, like, the raw emotion that you bring forth, it is so there. And I'm guessing even in motion, it will be much more better. Yes, I hope so. <laughs> All right, thank you again, and this... Offered through the First Nations and Indigenous Studies Program, FNIS 401G, Indigenous Law and the Settler State, is a three-credit course being taught by New Channel scholar Johnny Mack in Term 2. This course will focus on the relationships between Indigenous law, state law, and policy 